Good morning. Let's begin class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for such a beautiful day today. We thank you for your love, for your grace. We thank you for, for what we're reminded of in the celebration this weekend of your sacrifice and um, coming to earth to provide remedy for our, our sin condition and to um, restore us back into harmony and unity with you. We pray that you will give us wisdom and insight as we study today in your presence. Will be, be with us. We pray in your holy name. Amen. So we're doing lesson number three in the court of the book of Luke. And the title this week is, Who is Jesus Christ? Son of God. Okay, Son of God. Any other thoughts? Son of man. Son of man. Savior. Savior. Messiah. Messiah. God in human flesh. God in human flesh. Yeah, these are all true. I actually put a long list in the notes. If you want to look at those, I want to read that list real quick. First thing I put down was God. Who is Jesus? He's God in human flesh. God. And then Son of God, Son of Man. These are the things I said too. Creator. Realize Jesus is the member of the Godhead through which creation happened. All things are made by him. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. He's the member through which creation happened. Messiah, Deliverer, Redeemer. Bright and morning star, Light Bearer. He's the light that lightens all men. Great physician. Great physician, heavenly physician, yeah. I, I put that right under teacher, teacher, doctor, because the word doctor originally meant teacher. Healer. Healer, yes. Good, good. High priest. Our heavenly high priest. The almighty. How about everlasting father? When you hear Jesus, do you think everlasting father? But what's Isaiah say? For unto us a child is born. His name shall be called wonderful, counselor, everlasting father, prince of peace. Do you ever realize that the one born and the father are one? Isn't that interesting? And of course, and of course, if we consider the fact that he is the one who created us, then he is our father. Really, isn't it? Yeah. And he is eternal, so he's everlasting. Um, ancient of days, Alpha and Omega, Bridegroom, the Bread of Life, Chief Cornerstone, Lamb of God, Emmanuel, El Shaddai, Elohim, Yahshua, the I Am, the Good Shepherd, Jehovah, the Just One, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, Lion of the tribe of Judah, Lord of the Sabbath, Lord of Hosts, Lord of Glory, Master, Teacher, Resurrection and Life, Righteous Judge, Rock of Salvation, Root of Jesse, Seed of Abraham, Seed of David, the Vine, the Word, Pardon? The Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, yes. So with, after all these, and there's more, I, that just I truncated. Um, who is Jesus? That's the lesson's asking. Who is, Jesus, who is Jesus Christ? Creator, Savior, Friend, a being of supreme love, kindness, grace, gentleness, goodness, yet all-powerful with life original in himself, underived from another source. Yeah? Now, I want to talk to you about what are some of the other views, though. Besides, this is the view that I hold, what we just went through, about Jesus. But what are some of the other views that are taught about Jesus, who he was, and if those views are true, what problems do they present, obstacles to the plan of salvation, if those views are true? First one I'll throw out for you, because it's an obvious one. Some people teach that Jesus was a prophet not the Son of God. He was a good man, a good prophet, but not the Son of God. This is a common teaching, isn't it? If that were true, 
What are the problems that presents for the plan of salvation? First, it makes him a liar. Now, first, it makes him a liar. Why does it make him a liar? Because he claims he's equal to God. No other problem did that. Okay. He even called himself the I Am, the bread of heaven. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Father and I are one. Okay? Good. So, number one, then, he's a false prophet if he's a prophet. That's a big problem. Why would we believe a false prophet? So, if we're going to say he's a prophet, we're actually just making Christ a false prophet. Because he can't be a true prophet if he's a prophet. All right, so what else? But but putting that point aside, if he's just a prophet, not the Son of God, what are other problems with the plan of salvation? He can't be our remedy. Ah, yes, why? If he's just a prophet, then what is he compared to the rest of us? He's a good man. Yes, does does he have a nature that's different than ours? Does he bring anything to the equation? Or is he born of the same heredity, fallen nature that Adam and the rest of us get? Sinful mother, sinful father. If he's just a prophet. So he brings nothing to the equation that can cure and fix our sin situation if he's just a prophet. So it does away with the plan of salvation. It does away with the plan of salvation. We can't be saved. Now, in, in its true context, the son understanding reality as God has constructed reality operated does away with the plan of salvation. But in the false paradigm, in the paradigm in which God is a dictator and he makes up rules and you break the rules he's got to punish... In that false paradigm, they can still promote the idea, but see, the problem with sin is God's mad and he has to punish somebody to take out his wrath, and Jesus can still be the vehicle who gets all that punishment placed upon him, and we can still accept him as a payment in our place. And so they can still promote this idea of Jesus being the payment. Except then wouldn't it be God willing to sacrifice his creation to save? Brilliant. You see, so then what do we learn about God if he's just a prophet? He's exactly like Satan Exactly. See, we don't learn God is self-sacrificing and God is love and God humbles himself in the form of a servant as Philippians says Jesus did. No, we learn God stays up in heaven and hides behind another being and is willing to kill another being to protect himself. God's selfish. So it twists everything. How about this one? Jesus is a created being but the Son of God. He's a created being. In other words, he's not doesn't have a life original, unbarred, underived. He's not fully divine. He was created by God as his first son. As a created being. This is closer to what Jehovah's Witnesses teach. But then he's not eternal. Then he's not eternal. He doesn't have life original to himself that he brings to the equation to share with us. He's not infinite. He's not equal member of the Godhead. So what do we learn about God? Again, that he's willing to sacrifice a lesser being to protect himself. We don't learn. We can't look to Jesus and learn about God. We can look to Jesus and learn about Jesus. And then Satan's allegations would be true, too, because Satan said, well, he and I are just the same, and that actually was not the case. Exactly. Exactly. Well said. All right, how about this one? Jesus is the divine offspring of God. It's not created by God as uh, uh, speak and it comes into existence, breathes into the dust and it comes into life. It's not created by God. He is the divine offspring of God. He's, he's extended from the substance of God. There was a time when God eternal existed alone and he somehow gave of his own substance and Christ came from him, a divine offspring of God. This is also, also a common teaching. 
Have you heard that one? So he's not like created other created beings. What would be the problem? My first question would be, from our understanding of offspring, uh, how did that come about? And that gets complicated real fast. Well, that's because our, yeah, and, they would, and the people who promote this view would simply say, well, that's because we're finite beings and we have limited capacity. And so we take a, a male and a female and so forth and so on. But even on Earth today, there are some creatures who can reproduce asexually, okay? And so God could reproduce as an infant being asexually and produce another member of himself. This is what they would say. I'm just telling this is how their position would go. Yes. But what's, there's, still, there's still a major flaw in this theory. Well, it causes issues with what we've learned about in this class about the law of love and how the only way it can exist is in a giving environment. So if God is love, then it would be impossible for him to have been alone with nobody, nothing to outward move. For this is well, well said. This is, this is the key crux problem with this theory. It actually re-represents God as a being other than love. If we understand love as the principle of beneficence, the principle of giving, love is, is functionally requires an object to give to. And the minimum number for love to be self-sacrificial is three, not two. You see, in a two, you can have narcissistic love. I've seen this, and I'm going to give you kind of a general view of, of how I've seen this. See if you've seen it. I've seen this in my practice. But a husband and wife, they get married, and they are absolutely in love. They're happy. They travel together. They go vacation together. They just, they just adore each other. And then they have their first child. <laughs> and the husband can't stand that he doesn't get all the attention anymore. He can't stand that the wife is spending time with the child and not with him. He becomes jealous. He becomes irritable. He becomes angry because he needs to be the one that she adores more than the child. You see what they had before? Was that love? No. When the third one comes along, now it requires, if you really love the others more than self, then you celebrate in their relationship. And you sacrifice self for them. And so the triad of the Trinity is really the smallest unit you can have and have genuine self-sacrificial love. And if you remove that, you get selfishness. And this is what is taught in this idea um, along these lines. But they will also say, it is a greater sacrifice for a parent to sacrifice a child than to sacrifice themselves. And so it was a greater act of love for the father to sacrifice his child. Most parents would rather put themselves in harm way to protect their child. And I would suggest that conclusion is predicated on an assumption that the character of the parent is already love. That's the assumption. If God is love, then sacrificing a son would be a greater sacrifice than sacrificing himself. But if God is the kind of being Satan alleges, selfish, then this would not be true. There are many parents who actually sacrifice their own children to protect themselves. We see this all through history. I remember Susan Smith in South Carolina 15, 20 years ago. Do you remember that? She had a boyfriend, and she had a child from her previous relationship, and the child was an infant, and the boyfriend didn't want a kid, so she put the child in the car, put it in the car seat, drove the car into the lake, and drowned her child so she could be with her boyfriend. This is your story. She's doing time in prison for the rest of her life for this. But 
but see, she sacrificed her child. Was it a greater sacrifice of love there? No. So this idea that, that a father sacrifices his child is a greater sacrifice than sacrificing himself is only true if the being is a being of love. But we can't know that by looking just at the sacrifice if Christ is a lesser being than God. The only way we'll know that is if Christ and God are equal fully, totally, in every way. Then we realize, hey, we look to Jesus, now we're informed about how God acts. And that's what Jesus said, if you see me, you've seen the Father, the Father and I are one. Now we can know God is love, and now we can have confidence it was a great sacrifice in its part. But if Jesus is a lesser being than God, as this suggests, then we actually can't be sure of that, can we? Did y'all follow that? I confuse you. And then, how about this one? Jesus was not born of a fallen human woman, but was born of a sinless human woman. Did you know this is a common teaching in the world? Yes. The Roman Catholic Church teaches this. So there's a billion people who promote the idea of the Immaculate Conception to Mary, who was sinless. Mary did not have sin. And, and some teachings within Catholicism, because she was sinless, she is a co-redemptrix. She works with Jesus for our redemption. Now, this theory, first off, the first question should come to everyone's mind is, how did Mary become sinless? Yeah, how far back did that go? Yeah, and who were her parents? From where did she get, where did she obtain her sinless humanity? And if Mary, and, and further, further, I mean, it doesn't take a lot of reasoning to realize there's something fatally flawed with this, because here's this idea. If Mary could have somehow obtained sinlessness without Jesus, then why did Jesus come at all? Because obviously if Mary could have had sinlessness without Jesus, there's an avenue somewhere. We just have to find the avenue Mary took, and we can have sinlessness without Jesus, you see? Jesus isn't really necessary. If Mary could be sinless, it kind of completely destroys the whole plan of salvation. So when she's spoken of as a holy mother... <laughs> Uh, is that being referred to the fact of her supposedly being sinless or just purely being the mother of Christ? Uh, you'd have to, I think some, some would do it both ways. Depends on the person, how, what they mean. Are you familiar with what that theory is based on? Is it something about the mixing of the blood? No, no, it has to do with this idea that God is so holy and so righteous that sin cannot exist in God's presence. Okay, so... If- so, so Christ being sinless and holy, he, uh, sin could not exist in his presence. And so when he became in the womb of Mary, sin could not exist in Mary or else Christ could not be there. You say, this is the idea. Okay. Well, where did sin begin? In God's presence. In God's presence. Okay, in heaven with Lucifer. So their whole premise is not supported by the historical record of where sin began. It began in God's presence and it existed there. And Christ spent his entire ministry surrounded by and eating with and communing with sinners. Yes. Additionally, if this view that Jesus was born of a sinless human mother were true, it destroys the plan of salvation. We can't be saved. Why? Why can we not be saved if that's true? Because he had to partake of our nature and cure it. That's right. Because the, the, the condition, this terminal condition with which we suffer that we inherited from Adam, he never partook of, he never cured, he never overcame, he's never, he's never provided remedy for. He, he's, he's part of actually some other species. 
Not just species, but that's not actually what Scripture teaches. Scripture actually teaches very clear in Romans that from his humanity, he's descended from David. It says it straight in Romans. He descended from David in his humanity. This theory, again, though, is based on accepting the false law construct. God's law is imposed. If sin is breaking the rules, it's offensive to God. It's so offensive that God can't exist, that, that sin can't exist in God's presence, so Mary had to be without sin. The problem is an offended God, and God needs propitiation. Uh, this view denies that Christ came to cure the condition. The entire theory is based on accepting his penal substitution and payment for our, for, for our, for our, our misdeeds and, and breaching of the law. How about Jesus was uh, this one? This is the last one. It's also taught. Jesus was not born of humanity at all. He just merely appeared at age 30 as a human being. As he did in Old Testament times, he appeared as a human being to Abraham at times and talked to him. He wasn't partaking of humanity. He just appeared in the form of humanity. And he just, uh, you know, basically there was a human being born, but at age 30, Jesus came down into that human body and from 30 to 33 just lived as a human being. What's the problem with that one? It leaves us without remedy again for the same reasons. Um, he didn't partake of the condition. He didn't overcome it. He didn't cure it. He didn't develop through his life by exercise of his human brain a perfect human character. So no remedy exists for our condition. It's also based on that idea of a payment being necessary. He just simply came to be the payment. So after all this, who is Jesus Christ? God, who became human and overcame sin as a human being by the exercise of his human brain, developing a perfect humanity and eliminating from the humanity he partook the infection that Adam did to this humanity. Thus, Jesus is the vine, the source, the conduit through which God's perfect character of love flows back into this species human. And all who partake of Jesus become grafted into the vine and it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. The law is written on the heart and mind. The spirit takes what Christ has achieved and reproduces it in us. We get new hearts and right spirits. We get the mind of Christ. We're reborn. We're recreated in the inner man. The old is gone. The new has come. All the metaphors are connecting to Christ in love and trust. We are regenerated to be like him. Sunday's lesson. The lesson asks us to read Luke seven seventeen through 22. I'm going to read through verse 23, and this is out of the remedy. After this, news about Jesus spread like wildfire throughout Judea and the surrounding country. John's students told him everything Jesus was doing. He called two of them and sent them to Jesus to ask, Are you the one whom, who God promised to send, or should we look for another? When the students came to Jesus, they said to him, John the Baptist sent us to ask you, are you the one God, who God has promised to send, or should we look for another? As they stood watching, Jesus demonstrated his methods. He cured many people of disease, infections, and mental oppression. And to those who were blind, he gave sight. He turned to John's students and said, Go back and tell John what you have witnessed here. The blind see, the paralyzed walk, those with leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised to life, and the remedy is fr given freely to the poor, happy and healthy is the person who doesn't reject me. Why did John ask? Why did John send his disciples, his students, to ask Jesus if you're the one or should we look for another? Why did he do it? I think he, like many others, was expecting an overthrow of Rome. Ah, beautiful. In which case, his imprisonment would be the perfect um, 
pretext. Catalyst. Yes. Catalyst. That's, that's it. So, what, so what, what type of coming did the Jews expect in Christ's advent? What were they looking for? What type of methods were they looking for him to use? Power, coercion, uh, to destruction, killing the enemies. Was Jesus coming, fulfilling to those expectations? No, not at all. Didn't even come close. That's why many couldn't accept him. So how did Jesus then respond to John's question? Evidence. Thank you. Right, the same way God responded to Lucifer's allegations. That's right. He gave evidence. He provided evidence. He went out and did revealing. Now, as he gave this evidence, all the things we just read in that Bible passage, how was it viewed? Levels one through four? Remember levels one through four from a couple weeks ago? Okay. Levels one through four? Wow, he's powerful. Jesus is powerful. He's got God's power. We better worship him because he's powerful. He can he can raise people from the dead. He can cure diseases. He's powerful. This is how one through four see it. He's got power. Levels five through seven. See, God not only has power. But God is love, and he uses his power only to bless, to heal, to dispel evil, to cure. He gives of himself for our good. God is compassionate, forgiving, gracious, trustworthy. He, his purpose is to restore this creation to a love relationship with him, not establish authority in order to rule in dominance like earthly governments do. So if you actually look at a higher level, yes, he's using power, but every time Christ used power, what was revealed in the way he used power? but he used it to bless, to help, to uplift, never to to hurt or to injure. What do people expect today about the second coming of Christ? What are the expectations? We just went through, they had an expectation. It wasn't that they weren't looking for Advent, the Messiah to come. They were looking for the Messiah to come, but their expectation caused them to miss his coming. What is the expectation of the world today and the second coming? In the back, somebody online. Uh, I have someone made a comment that I think maybe you need to comment on. And so he was a stumbling block to the Jews. They were expecting a mighty warrior king, not a lowly servant. Yeah, that's actually right from Scripture. Peter talks about it and other people that, that the cornerstone, the chief cornerstone upon which the living temple is to be built on the foundation of the apostles of Christ, the chief cornerstone, became a stumbling block to those who could not accept God's character was this way. Those who retained a view that God runs his universe like an earthly dictator runs an earthly government, they stumbled over a gracious, loving, self-sacrificial God as revealed in Jesus. They couldn't handle that. This is not the God we want. And they fell. That's right. So, so what are people expecting today regarding the second coming? Some guy with a tattoo on his leg coming to kick butt and, and slaughter the wicked. So two, two possibilities. Russell said one of them. And that is he's coming with vengeance, with a rod of iron, to kill and torture his enemies. Or he's coming secretly. And everybody who's with him is going to simply disappear. This is this is the two major teachings about his coming. Number one word on judgment. Judgment. He's coming to judge and punish. He's coming to to kill his enemies is very commonly taught. Under the guise of making things right. Yeah, under the guise of justice, because this is level four and below, looking through imposed law constructs that you have to then impose punishments. Is Jesus coming in either one of these ways? 
Did people miss out on the first coming because of their false expectations? Are people going to be in danger of missing the second because of the false expectations? I don't think they'll miss it, but I think they'll be surprised what side they're on. <clears throat> I, got, I see what you mean. Yeah, I, I meant misparticipating in it. Thank you for clarifying that. Okay. And running from it instead of being part of it. Okay. Thank you for clarifying that. Isn't the, uh, the emotion that creates is if you feel unsaved, it's total fear of that judgment. It's everything's, why even try? I don't have a chance. Or, uh, those who live with a self-righteous attitude is like, hiya, they're finally going to get it type of attitude, which is actually unchrist attitude, like attitude, which is like, okay, I can't be vengeance, but God's going to do it for me. So the whole thing, everybody's attitude under that perspective. Yeah, and I think you're hitting the key to the answer to the question that, that, that is next on our, our notes, and that is what, and I think it, 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 this answer answers both the second coming and the first coming. What caused the people to have false expectations at the first coming? What do you think the root underlying problem was that set them up to have the false expectation? Place their own character on God. Place their own character on God, which means they look through which lens? It's clearly, they look through the self-centered, imposed law, rules-oriented, must-punish lens. That's how they were viewing it. They were very legalistic. We've got this law. You must keep the law. If you don't keep the law, then you must be punished. How do people in the world today, Christians in general, teach things? It's the same type of distortion. They didn't understand God's law and character. They viewed God through the lens of a human-imposed law. Therefore, they expected him to come to use his power and might to destroy his enemies and inflict punishment. And today, many good people misunderstand God's law in the same way. And I can tell you, many good people are looking for a God who's going to come to bring justice. And if you watch TV at all, justice is, I I see it all the time on TV. What is justice as portrayed on TV? Getting even. Eye for an eye. Hunting down. We have to bring justice to ISIS. Right? What do we have to do? We have to go kill them. Uh, on, t- on television dramas, uh, somebody has, uh, I, I saw, I was watching one the other day, I don't remember what show it was, some police drama, and somebody's loved one was murdered, and, uh, and the police officer said to the, the, the family members, can't you, you know, help us with this information? Don't you want your brother to have justice? And, when, what, and, and in the context, what it meant is, don't you want us to find this person and, and punish them? This is what the world uses justice. And so if Jesus is coming back to bring justice, he's coming back to use his power to inflict punishment. This is actually Satan's goal because Satan is coming to misrepresent Christ. He's coming to impersonate Christ. And I suspect the future in some time, there's going to be a being of dazzling splendor and um, able to do amazing miracles. He's going to speak melodious words. He's going to talk about love and grace. He's going to talk about coming to reconciliation. He's going to talk about self-sacrifice. He's going to talk about um, giving up prejudices and biases. But he's also going to talk about how we must keep the rules and that he died to pay the penalty for us. And if we don't accept it, then if you don't accept and worship him, then as much as he hates it, as much as it breaks his heart, he's going to have to imprison you and eventually kill you for your disobedience. And the most of the Christian world and other religions of the world are going to go, this is our God, we've waited for him. And it's not Jesus at all. This is Satan's manifestation. This is the beast. 
So what will Christ's coming be like? How about this? The protective hand of God, which has shielded sinful earth from the full reality of God and the rest of the universe, is removed, and earth is brought out of its shielded position and enters in the fullness of God's presence. And what happens? The righteous living are transformed to have, in the twinkling of an eye, the mortal puts on immortality, and corruption puts on incorruption, and the righteous... Um, dead are raised to eternal life and the wicked on earth are so overwhelmed with this unveiled splendor of truth and love that their fearful and selfish minds cannot handle it and they literally shut down, go into sleep mode, cease operations, waiting for the resurrection at the end of the thousand years. It says in Thessalonians, if you like this language better than what I just said, they're destroyed by the brightness of his coming. That's what it says. But that's what it means, what I just said. Monday's lesson. Do you understand that earth right now is in an artificial bubble of reality from the rest of the universe? Earth is the only place in the universe that God created that is disconnected from his full unveiled glory. Why do you say artificial? Because it's not natural. Same thing, what, when somebody is really sick and they're put on a machine to breathe for them, what do we call that? Artificial respiration. God is using his divine power to create an artificial bubble of reality to allow us, and it says in Romans chapter 3, that he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. This is the language of the translators. In other words, he left the full consequences of what sin does to his creation unreaped. He's shielded us from those full consequences to allow the Messiah to come. And he started intercession. As soon as Adam and Eve sinned, God began intervening in the natural course of sin in order to offer an alternate outcome through Jesus Christ. Does that make sense to everybody? And maybe you've read things that's, uh, from some writers that say things like, if Christ would have come with the glory he shared with the Father before his incarnation, he would have destroyed those he came to save. Why would, why would that have been? Because he'd been mad? Jesus would have come to earth 2,000 years ago with his full glory? They would have died because he'd been mad at them? Or because we, in our unregenerate state, it's overwhelming for us. We can't function there until our hearts have been renewed and we have been cleansed from the fear and selfishness in which we abide. Monday's lesson says, read, a second, uh, read the second paragraph. Let's start the second paragraph. In Luke 1, 31-32, the angel links the name Jesus with the Son of the Highest, to whom the Lord, will, the Lord will give the throne of David. Jesus is the Son of God. He is also the Christ, the Messiah, who shall restore David's throne, not as in an earthly deliverer, but in, in an eschatological sense, in that he will ultimately defeat Satan's attempt to usurp the throne of God himself. The sh- uh, to the shepherds, the angel's announcement that the babe in the manger is the Savior, who is Christ the Lord. Now, ultimately defeat Satan's attempt to usurp the throne of God himself. What do you think that means? Did Satan want to knock God off a particular piece of furniture in heaven? Is that what that means? He wanted to get this. This is the throne, and I want to be able to sit on it. Was that what this is about? This was not about a piece of furniture. 
No, Lucifer wanted to enthrone himself into the minds of intelligent beings as the one most loved, most adored, most trusted, and dethrone God from the spirit temple as the place of of reverence and adoration. That's what, what this was about. So when it talks about God's throne, this is not some big, mighty temple building with a cool, ornate piece of furniture. That's not what it's about. We think too concretely many times. It's about what, who resides in the sacred chambers of your heart and mind as the one most loved, trusted, and adored. Who's enthroned in your heart? That's what it's about. So with this in mind, Satan wanting to dethrone God as the one loved and adored by intelligent beings, what, what weapon did he, or weapons did he use? How did Satan seek to achieve this goal? He's the father of? And lies believed? Break the circle of love and trust. So Jesus would come to defeat this strategy. How would Jesus defeat Satan's strategy? What method would Jesus use to defeat him? Hebrews 2.14, By his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death that is the devil. And we went over this a couple weeks ago in our seminar. See if somebody can walk me through that. What is the devil's power and how did Jesus' death destroy it? Anybody? Okay, what is life eternal? That we know God, John 17, 3. If eternal life equals knowing God, then what's eternal death equal? Not knowing God. So then what's Satan's power of death? The lies he tells about God that we believe that keep us from knowing him. So Satan, uh, so Jesus destroys that by revealing the truth about God that destroys the lies and Satan's power is removed. He has no power now. Once we're settled in the truth about God, he has no power. His power is power of life. Here's a couple of historical quotes that are also based on 2 Corinthians 10 through 5 uh, about this war over the knowledge of God. We take every thought, captivity, and so forth. This is a great controversy, page 493. In the atonement, the character of God is revealed. Wait a minute. In the atonement, the legal payment is made. How about it's, this, this author writes, this author writes, in the atonement, the character of God is revealed. In the contest between Christ and Satan, during the Savior's earthly ministry, the character of the great deceiver was unmasked. Nothing could so effectually have uprooted Satan from the affections of heavenly angels and the whole loyal universe as did his cruel warfare upon the world's redeemer. They, not only was God revealed, Satan was exposed as a liar and a fraud. And this is out of Zara of Ages 761. Satan saw that his disguise was torn away. His administration was laid open before the unfallen angels and before the heavenly universe. He had revealed himself as a murderer. By shedding the blood of the Son of God, he had uprooted himself from the sympathies of the heavenly beings. Henceforth, his work was restricted. Whatever attitude he might assume, he could no longer await the angels as they came from the heavenly courts and before them accused Christ's brethren of being clothed with the garments of blackness and defilement of sin. The last link of sympathy between Satan and the heavenly world was broken. Amen. Now, <clears throat> there's so, there's, there's, these two quotes are just deep with, with contemplation and thoughts to think. First off, if, do you all believe that Satan revealed himself as a murderer at the cross? Yes. yes. Okay. And Satan is the reason that he, evil human beings were instigated to crucify Christ. And this is very 
critical because most of Christianity actually teaches God killed Jesus at the cross. The majority of Christian teaching in churches teach that under the imperial post false law construct, that having broken the law, the law requires a legal payment be made, and God, who is the enforcer of the law and the judicial, the, the, the eternal uh, magistrate, must in, inflict that just punishment. And Jesus, who took our sins upon himself, had all sins, past, present, and future, placed upon him, and God punished Jesus in our place, and God killed Jesus for justice to be maintained. It never means. This is what most of Christianity teaches. It's a lie. It's fraudulent. It's based on believing Satan's distorted view about God. No, Satan revealed himself as a murderer at the cross. Satan is the source of death. God is the source of life. Second thing, I, I love this idea that after he revealed himself, that the sympathy, the, the, and, and by the way, is it surprise you that heavenly beings might have had sympathy for, for Satan? No. No, think about who he was. They had a relationship with him. They spent who knows how many millions of years uh, traveling the universe and, 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 and singing together and all the things that they might have done. They were friends with Lucifer. It's hard if you've had somebody that was a close friend, somebody you loved, somebody you trusted, who goes down the path of, of rebellion and exploitation. It's hard to let go your, your bonds of sympathy, isn't it? Yes. It was a, he had a charming personality. And he had a charming personality, and he was uh, incredible in his articulation, I'm sure, absolutely. And so, but at the cross, the last threads of sympathy were broken. I love this idea. And then after that, henceforth, his work was restricted. He could no longer wait the heavenly beings coming to throw on earth. Why? It's because at the cross, God used his power to put a force bubble shield around earth, and Satan goes, he can't get like out of, out of this bubble. He's restricted here. Is that why? No, think about what's being described. What's restricting him? There, get No intelligent being anywhere else outside planet earth will listen to anything Satan says. Talk to the hand. I'm not listening. Not listening. Nobody listens except on earth. The only beings that listen to him now are here. And this is part of the reason why he's a roaring lion going around to devour because he's mad because he can't divert his energies to deceive anyone else in the universe so all of his energies are faced on us now. His time is short and he knows it. So what will it take, with this in mind, what will it take to restrict Satan's influence on earth? Thank you. Not some imposition of power. Do you understand? When Christians teach that what's going to restrict Satan's influence on earth is Jesus coming back and he's going to have his angels and he's going to have fiery swords and he's going to have power and he's going to, some angels are going to grab him and put a big chain on him and throw him down in a pit and, and this is what's going to do. We're going to force in might that this is actually making Satan stronger. It's Satan's version of God. It, it perpetuates the lies and the distortions. It keeps people in fear. The way that Satan's power on earth is restricted is by presenting the true picture of God, his character, his methods, how he operates, so that people are so settled into the truth about God, they can't be influenced by Satan's lies anymore. This is how we restrict his influence on earth. So what do you see happening in the world today as you look around? Is Satan's power being more and more restricted because minds are closing to his lies? Or are more and more people accepting Satan's methods of rulership and teaching God is like Satan in character, a being who must inflict punishment? Which is happening? Yeah, that's what we see happening. Fourth paragraph, it says, 
Yet the relationship between the Father and the Son is not the same as the relationship we have with God. While our relationship is the result of the work of Christ, both as creator and redeemer, his relationship to the Father as the Son is as one of three equal eternal partners. Through his divinity, Jesus maintained the closest possible ties to the Father. (coughs) Excuse me. Now, no question, we've already taken my position, Jesus is fully divine, we've already talked about that, co-equal, co-eternal with the Father, no no problem there. Um, But, during his 33 years on earth, was his connection as a human maintained with the Father through his own divinity and divine attributes? Which is what almost hear them saying here, through his divinity, Jesus maintained the closest possible ties. He used his divinity to stay connected with the Father. Is that what happened? No. That's not what the Bible teaches. No, this is, this is, this is, it's very critical. We understand this is not true. His divinity that he possessed as the full Son of God and fully man, both, did not give him an advantage. In fact, it caused him to have more hurdles to overcome than you and I. How many of you, when you've been hungry, were tempted to turn stone into bread? I've never had that temptation. Maybe you had that one. If so, I'll, I'll, maybe, maybe your meds were low that day. <laughs> you see, because, because finite beings cannot turn stones into bread. Jesus could, though. So he was tempted that way. He also, on the, on the cross, the two thieves, did they have the ability to, with a thought, wipe out their opposition and float down off the cross? Could the two thieves have done that? Could Jesus have done that? Notice. See, he had to resist accessing powers that we never even get tempted with. Yes, and so did Elijah. Didn't he? Never for himself. Never for himself. So the question is, Jesus himself, of my own self, I can do everything. Is that what he said? Nothing. What does that mean? All of the miracles that Jesus performed were the same way that Paul, the apostles, and Elijah, and everyone else in human history has performed miracles, not through the access of his divine power, even though he could have done so, but because he was relying in faith in relationship with his Father. He overcame as a human being. That's the point. But how about the woman at the well? He knew her life, how many husbands she had and everything. And where does that wisdom come from in discernment? When, when, when Daniel prophesied about the future kingdoms, how could he have done that? How could he have known those things? Because he was accessing divine power because God reveals things to those who are in tune with him. Are you saying then, because yes, what Tina's saying, the knowledge that Christ have that we don't have. So are you saying... That if we lived in the close connection with God that Christ did, really our lives would be no different than Christ's life in knowledge and abilities through from the Heavenly Father. No, no, don't, don't, don't. See, that gets really sticky. No, see, because you're, you're reading things in there that, that are, that you are assuming that each of us have the same historical place and time, dealing with the same people, having the same mission, having the same purpose in God's plan that Jesus had. No. If we live in the way Jesus did, we will have the same character he had, 
be able to love in the same way he loved, and we will be able to fulfill the purpose that God has for our unique individuality in the place and time and history we find ourselves. And that purpose may include that something is revealed to us that was not revealed to Christ 2000, 2,000 years ago. Okay, so then you are not saying that if we lived in that closer connection, um, the same power of miracles and everything would be given to human beings the same. Now, I'll... I, yeah, I, absolutely, as long as it's God's purpose for it to be that way. Okay. okay, it's God's purposes that were being fulfilled. Christ said, I do nothing of myself. The words I speak are not my own. He was fulfilling God's purposes, and his purpose was to reveal the character of the Father. And so he carried out in human flesh the purposes of God living in human flesh and revealing the character of the Father. Now, other miracles were performed by the apostles, many of them, in some ways, some, some ways almost more miraculous than Christ because they were taking pieces of cloth and having the shadows of the apostles pass over the claws and then take the claws to people and people were being healed from these things. But what the, what were the apostles doing the healing? No. Who was doing the healing? God was doing the healing. Well, who did the healing when Christ was doing this? The power wasn't coming, as I understand, from Christ accessing his divine nature, which he could have done. It was coming because he was living as a human being dependent on his Father's power. Relying on the Father. Yes. And that was the challenge that he had. So nothing that he did, none of the miracles or anything that he did on earth, was of himself. It all came through the power of God. That's correct. He said, of his words, of mine own self, I do nothing. It wasn't mine, that's Jesus' words. He was tempted in all points, here's another one, he was tempted in all points, like we are, yet without sin, and it says in James that divinity cannot be tempted, God cannot be tempted. So all the temptations he had were went through his humanity, so his humanity had to overcome, and he overcame with his humanity, not with his divinity, yes. I don't remember the text, but there is actually a text where Jesus tells the apostles, you will do greater things than these. Yes, there is a text that says that. And what do you think those greater things are? What do you think those greater things are? Well, I mean, you just said some of of their miracles were questionably more miraculous. And I think this is an aspect of greater. In Jesus Christ, we see what a sinless human being looks like. But do we see a human being who has deep-seated habit patterns of selfishness, addiction, sin, hatred, um, exploitation of others being overcome? Do we see that? No. So in Jesus, we see perfect human humanity lived out perfectly in love. But in us, we are corroded in a way that he was never corroded. We have addictions, we have bad habit patterns, we've, we've actually done sin that we've loved to do at the time we did it. He never did. And when we come to Christ, we get to partake of the victory he's achieved that regenerates and heals us in a way that he never had to be healed. Does that make sense to you all? And so there's a greater manifestation of healing, regenerating power manifested in us because we're much more necrotic than he ever was, because he wasn't. He was always sinless. So when he was born Mary, he inherited none of her sinful characteristics? No. He, he inherited them and just overcame them? No. He did not inherit sinful characteristics. He inherited a humanity that was capable of being tempted like us. That's different. Propensities, characteristics are different than capacity for temptation. 
So in his humanity, he was able to be tempted like us. And we see that in Gethsemane. He experienced powerful human emotions. Those emotions tempted him to act in self-interest. But he had no propensity or inkling toward it that, that we can be born with. Okay. okay? So he started out like Adam. No. <laughs> no. No, because Adam didn't have a humanity that tempted him at all. He didn't have a humanity that feared at all. He didn't have a humanity that anguished. He didn't have a humanity that got hungry. He didn't have a humanity that got sleepy and had to sleep. He didn't have a humanity like that. Adam, Adam didn't have that. Adam, the second Adam. Yeah, he is the second Adam to overcome and fix what Adam did to the human species. But Adam and Eden, in his own human strength, not in a trust-faith relationship, drawing strength from the Father, could have overcome and resisted temptation and said no. Adam and Eden could have said no to the temptation. Christ overcame in a human condition that required constant faith and trust in his Father. That's how we overcome. Yes? Jesus said he felt power come out from him to the woman that he that touched his hem. So yes. he had the power is what this guy's saying. Yes. Jesus was the conduit through which God was working. Okay. You plug in something into the electrical outlet over here, power's throwing through the through the outlet, lighting up something. But the power isn't originating in the outlet, it's flowing through the outlet. Jesus was the conduit through which God's power was flowing back into humanity. That's my understanding. And I also do understand that Jesus had the capacity, that's why he was tempted to turn rocks into bread, and so forth and so on. He was tempted, come down off the cross, he could have done these things, but had he accessed his divine power in those ways, it would have been self-centered, and it would have actually not fixed what was needed to be fixed in human, in human condition. He actually had all the power, but he didn't use it. Yes, this is what's, this is what's amazing. Think about, I've, I've given this analogy before, but remember the old TV shows, I Dream of Genie and Bewitched? Okay, they would blink their eyes or twiggle their nose and make things happen, right? Jesus, as I understand, didn't have to do that. On the cross, all he had to do was think, be gone. And they'd have been gone. What, I mean, he never even had the thought in his mind to harm the people. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're, he loved them. It wasn't even a thought in his mind to hurt them. This is what's so amazing. It's much less profound to think that he was no more powerful than the, uh, than the thieves on the cross and he couldn't have done anything about it. It's much less profound. Much less revealing about God, too. Okay, here's a couple more historic quotes. Faith I Live by, page 46. But he humbled himself and took more mortality upon him. As a member of the human, as a member of the human family, he was more mortal, but as God, he was the fountain of life to the world. He could, in his divine person, ever have withstood the advances of death and refused to come under its dominion. But he voluntarily laid down his life. Remember it says, no one can take my life, I give it freely. That in, that in so doing, he might give life and bring immortality to light. He bore the sins of the world and endured the penalty. What's the penalty? If you jump off the Empire State Building, what's the penalty? Why does the penalty come? Well, because there's a squad of soldiers that, that wait there and see anybody falling, they shoot them to make sure justice is done as they fall to the ground. Is that why? There's nothing inflicted. Christ experienced what sin does. And what does sin do to the sinner? It severs their connection with God. That's what it does. It's, it, separates, it disconnects us from him. And so on the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you let me go? I'm being disconnected. I'm being unplugged. It's horrible. 
This is what he suffered. That's the penalty. It's not an infliction. It's the consequence of what sin does. He bore the sins of the world and endured the penalty which rolled like a mountain upon his divine soul. He yielded up his life, a sacrifice that men should not eternally die. He died not through being compelled to die, but by his own free will. He surrendered in order to cure. And then this next is out of uh, Workers' Bulletin, September 9, 1902. As a remedy... For the terrible consequences into which selfishness led the human race, God gave his only begotten son to die for mankind. How could he have given more? In, in this gift he gave himself. I and my father are one, said Christ. By the gift of his son, God has made it possible for man to be redeemed and restored to oneness with him. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Love is the great principle that actuates unfallen beings. With amazement, the angels behold the indifference that those who have light and knowledge manifest toward a world unsaved. The heavenly hosts are filled with an intense desire to work through human agencies to restore in man the image of God. They are ready and waiting to do this work. The combined power... Of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is pledged to uplift man from his fallen state. Every attribute, every power of divinity has been placed at the command of those who unite with the Savior in winning men to God. Oh, that all would appreciate the truth as it is in Jesus. Oh, that all would love God in return for the love wherewith he has loved them. Now, these are profound. Tuesday's lesson, we're almost out of time. Oh my goodness. Um, essential that Christ is fully God. It's okay, it says the sixth paragraph. Let's see if we can knock this out really fast. Because um, Tuesday's lesson, sixth paragraph. It says, fourth, note how complete a picture of the suffering of Messiah that Luke portrays in the following passage. His foreknowledge of the cross, his betrayal, his death, his fulfillment of prophecy, and so forth and so on. Did, does God have real foreknowledge? Or is he only a good prognosticator? This issue, every time I discuss it, I get some really, really intense feedback by a handful of people. And let me put those people in the best light. Those whom I've talked to who reject the idea that God has foreknowledge do so because they want to protect God's reputation as a being of love. In their view, they believe that if God knows our decisions before we make them, then we are not free. And if we are not free, then there's no love. So their motive is to present God as a being of supreme love. And I respect that. And this is the view that most people with open theism have. And they would agree with us on many of the things we teach about God because they really believe God is supreme love and they'd reject penal substitution and so forth. But they, as far as I can tell, the misunderstanding or divergence comes on the question of whether knowing the future causes the future yeah. and takes away freedom. If it were true that to know the future would be pre-programming the choices of, of the beings in which we were all simply carrying out computer-programmed operations by a supreme programmer then I would also reject that idea. But I don't believe that's true. I think that's a very narrow, finite mind trying to understand infinity. In my, uh, my understanding, foreknowledge does is, is not equate with causality. And if we're going to look at, and that's just philosophical, if we look at actual evidence, let's look at quickly at the evidence of Jesus' life, since, since that's what we're talking about today. Did Jesus know what Jesus, Judas would do, i.e. betray him, before Judas actually betrayed him? <coughs> Did Jesus even foretell it? Now, was this the same type of foretelling as a ball player who walks up to the plate, points to center field? 
and then knocks one out of the park. Is that the same type of foretelling? Jesus was pointing and then going to make it happen and do his best and hope, hope and wish and dream. Is that what this was? Or did Jesus actually know? Did Jesus' knowledge of what Judas was going to do, did then Jesus cause Judas to betray him? Or was Judas still free to make his own choices? Jesus' own words from John 13, starting verse 18, I am not referring to all of you. I know those who I have chosen. But this is to fulfill the passage of Scripture. He who shares my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe in me. I, you know, I have a hard time getting around that. That's pretty straightforward. He knew, and he told them for a specific reason, so they believed. But people with open theism said, well, he didn't really know. He couldn't know. Well, Jesus may have known, but did Judas know? Jesus told him. Put his hand in the, whoever puts his hand in here. Does, does it sound like Jesus was guessing? Let's move on to a different one. Historic, here's a historic quote, Desire of Ages 716. But Judas does not come to the point of surrendering himself fully to Christ. Does that sound like he's being controlled by Christ? He did not come to the point of fully surrendering to Christ. He did not give up his worldly ambitions, his love of money. While he accepted the position of a minister of Christ, he did not bring himself under the divine molding. He felt that he could retain his own judgment. Does this sound like somebody who's being controlled by Christ? No, this idea that Christ's foreknowledge somehow took away his freedom of choice is completely inconsistent with the evidence as we have it. Did Jesus predict he would be crucified? How did Jesus know? Remember, these are the decisions of multiple peoples and multiple humans. How could he know he would be crucified? Remember, they dragged him out on more than one occasion to try to throw him off a cliff, to try and stone him. Remember, they tried several different methods to kill him. How did he know it would be crucifixion if he can't know the future? Not only that, didn't they stone Stephen? Well, well because, they could, because that was the Romans' way, and he could predict it because Romans, uh, they couldn't kill without Roman, Roman uh, authority, remember? And so that, that's, but wait a second, Stephen? Stephen was, how was Stephen killed? He was stoned. Did they get Roman permission to do that? No. So how in the world could Jesus know it would be crucifixion if he doesn't know the future? You see? This history, and he predicts it ahead of time, to me, it's compelling evidence that God foreknows decisions but doesn't control. Did, did before his incarnation, God prophesy that when he was crucified, he'd be hung between two thieves and that his clothes would be gambled over? How could he know? Seriously, how, how do you know he'd be in the middle, not on the right or the left? Did God force these people to do it this way? Were there angels compelling them to, to throw the dice? So you can see through the tomb? By faith, he could. Absolutely. He could see through the tomb because in the sense of he knew the design protocols for life and he knew that if he was successful, the inevitable outcome was restoration of life and he would rise again. So he told his disciples, I'm going to die and on the third day rise again. But on the cross, his emotional experience, he had no comfort from that. Right, right. So here's the last quote and we're going to end. Patriarchs and Prophets 43. He that rules in the heavens is the one who sees the end from the beginning, the one before whom the mysteries of the past and the future are alike outspread. The mysteries of the past and future alike outspread. See, I personally believe God is the one who's created the fabric of the cosmos, the, the t- space-time continuum. God built it. He is not restrained or confined by it. He sustains it. He lives outside and above time. 
He's not stuck in a linear existence as we are. And, and we can talk about some of the potential astrophysics of that after class if anyone's interested. But there's really kind of neat, neat ideas about that. Jesus left infinity and he entered linear existence. Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are a God of supreme power, but that's not sufficient. What makes you so adorable to us is your wonderful character of love is revealed in Jesus. That you are absolutely trustworthy, absolutely safe to have all the power. That you're always for us, never against us, and we never have to fear you using your power to hurt us. You're always trying to heal us. And that if we'd only get that straight, we could stop participating in the lies and distortions that keep us from you and keep us suffering so much. We pray that you will send your spirit to take all Christ as achieved, reproduce it in us, set our minds free from the lies, and make us effective in taking this message forward so that you may come. We pray in your holy name. Amen.